I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Imagine a society that subjects people to conditions that make them terribly unhappy, then gives them the drugs to take away their unhappiness. Science fiction. It is already happening to some extent in our own society. Instead of removing the conditions that make people depressed, modern society gives them antidepressant drugs. In effect, antidepressants are a means of modifying an individual's internal state in such a way as to enable him to tolerate social conditions that he would otherwise find intolerable. There is nothing wrong with violence in itself. Any particular case, whether violence is good or bad, depends on how it is used and the purpose for which it is used. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back again. We are back in Boston Sound and we are raring to go. Ben, you're a floating head. I am. You can't see me. <laughs> well, I can see your head. Yeah. Because you're wearing camo. For people, that, people that are listening rather than watching, Ben is wearing a lovely camo puma top. Yeah, thank you very much. And for those that are listening instead of watching, how would we describe... My thing. Your thing. It is a dog that likes war or fireworks. Dog of war. Dog of war. Or dog of fireworks, yeah. With dog tags, probably we can't see them. Oh, here's a dog tag. It's oh. a USA. So Terrific they, stuff. There you go. And in case you haven't gathered by the voices already, the three of us are down with a little case of the flu. Little, <coughs> there you Ooh, go. Little, a little under the weather. You know what? We were like, we can't, you know, let this cold win. We can't let down our avid listeners and viewers. We're going to, you know, as this t-shirt says, we're going to be in the trenches dog for you out. guys. Dog it out for you. So, yeah, um, if you, if our voices are slightly husky or a bit... Uh, we apologise. Yeah. But um, I mean, if I ever listen to anything or watch anything on the TV where someone has got a bit of a cold, it makes me feel more comfortable that I'm healthy and happy and in a warm place more often than so not. So you're the one of the people that watch those, like, ads about cancer and you're like, 
I feel great. <laughs> Whereas I'm like, that poor guy. No, it was like there was an episode of Lost where Sawyer had a cold. Oh, fucking and Lost. I was like, how Sawyer got a cold on a tropical island? And it was like, probably the rain, probably the rain. But you're like, I feel good now because I'm but watching like, he's got a cold. He's got a cold and it's not stopped him from, you know. That's not the point you were making hand. just then. No. You were saying like you've ploughed through. You feel good when people feel pain. No. How are you produced, Dan? Yeah, very good. Apart from the chest infection, but uh, great. That's it. That's the spirit we want. And yes, we've mentioned what we're wearing today. A big thank you to Gully Gums for, for addressing us this series. You can use our codes Kill Ben and Kill Tom in the store. Gully Gums get 30% off your orders. So, I mean, it is a competition. Ben is way in the lead. I'm being killed. Being killed. Less kills on me, but that's what you want. So, I mean, kill whoever you want to kill. Kill whoever you want to kill. On that, not in general. Yeah, absolutely. We hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, The Waco Siege, which mm. actually at the time of recording has just gone live on YouTube. It has. Yeah. It has. How's the bell tower been? All right. Lonely. But, Lonely. <laughs> but, you know, just doing my job. We, we do hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode, The Waco Siege. Very interesting case. And we're back with another very interesting case this week. They keep on coming. They do indeed. And, and I mean, on that note, Tom, the cases have been coming thick and fast. And after this week, we've just got four episodes left of Series 6. Yes. Can you believe it? I can't. This has absolutely flown by. Yeah. Um, hopefully these colds do. But yeah, it has absolutely flown by. Ben, today's case is a big yeah. one, like you mentioned. <sighs> Are you ready? Are you ready to get into it? I enjoyed the research for this one. I was surprised by a few elements of it. I wasn't aware of a few elements of it, but big case, as I said at the start, I think this is going to be our biggest series to date. It's another big one. It's Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Yes, indeed. But Ben, before we get into that, we want to say a big thank you to this week's sponsor. And yes, a big thank you to our friends over at Dead Happy who have sponsored this week's episode. And Dead Happy, Ben, tell us, tell the listeners a little more about what they provide as a service. So guys, as we move into the winter months, you know, there's a lot more bugs and germs mm. about, you know, sneaking there's up on you. There's a spider that you pissed on in Dan's toilet earlier. There's a big old spider, to be fair. It was already dead. Arachnid. But before those bugs and germs can get the better of you, you need to hear about the guy that dead happened. Earlier on, Ben blew his nose and half was snot and half was blood. And we're not saying that the blood's sinister, but it could be. Uh... <laughs> So Ben, you'll be glad that even though you've got that bloody thing up there, mm. uh, there's no medicals needed for to be covered by Dead Happy. Fantastic. Tell me and more. And simple questions. Only three simple questions. So, you, you know, not going to work too hard to get over the line. Yeah. And it, even if you already have an existing provider, which you probably don't. If you did, yeah. easy as hell to change over to them. That sounds unbelievable. Where do I sign up? How do I get on board? What do I have to do next? You should know because they sponsored us many a time, Ben. But you go over to their website, deadhappy.com, and also there's a few simple questions, a little bit of information on there. Bish, bosh, bash, you're covered. Your bloody nose is covered. So, Tom, obviously, as you, as you can hear, we're all a little bit bunged up in the uh, in the studio today. The last thing I want to be doing is touching a load of paper and packaging it and sending it off in an envelope, which is topical for today's a, case. Have you ever posted a letter? I'm trying to relate it to today's okay. case, you Last thing I want to be doing is get some paper, put it out there, put a bow on it, and lugging it to the postman. Would I be right in thinking that they they remove all of that stress and all of that possible contamination? Yeah, she's done pretty. Of course they do. Dead happy. It's simple. You go online, you fill in some details, and fish wash bash is done. Sign me up. What's the code? The code, Ben, is murder. And what do they get? They get the first three months absolutely free. There's a lot of fingers going on right now. Yeah. Anyway, back to the case. And Ben, uh, we did say that there'd be a continuing theme of us doing this lovely quote, and then it seemed to just disappear in your writing. But it's back. 
It is a quote to set the scene. Bonsi's going to lay a lovely little track underneath you to make it a bit gritty. Thank you, Bonsi. Are you ready to go? My voice will probably make it gritty enough because I sound awful at the moment. Sound the same to me. Sound the same, did you say? You don't sound any different. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. Is that a compliment? Take your comments where you can. So this week, guys, obviously there's, there's the Unabomber manifesto. Plenty of quotes I could have plucked out of there. Well, I have plucked one out of there, but there were a lot to choose from is what I'm saying. So I'm going to start with a quote from Ted Kaczynski. There is nothing wrong with violence in itself. In any particular case, whether violence is good or bad depends on how it is used and the purpose for which it is used. Power depends ultimately on physical force. By teaching people that violence is wrong, except of course when the system itself uses violence via the police or the military, the system maintains its monopoly on physical force and thus keeps all power in its own hands. So Ben, what does that mean exactly? It's it's a, it's an interesting one to decipher, Tom. Yeah, that's why I asked you. Yeah, so I'm sure the um, audience will love to hear. You. I mean, it, it's interpretation. Yeah, well, that's what you, it all how comes did, down how to. Did, how did you interpret it, Ben? That's well, what I'm, asking. I'm just you know I'm just allowing more more information to be absorbed right now. But I mean, the way I interpret that, that's that, question, that, yeah. that quote yep. is that um, essentially this individual that we're going to talk about today, mm. he had a problem with not necessarily authority. But society, as well as the culture at the time of the country he lived in, I feel like there could be plenty of Ted Kaczynski's out in the world right now, which doesn't answer your doesn't question. Doesn't question whatsoever. I feel um, what, my question was what you just read then. Yes. Put down. How do you interpret that? What, what that means? Um, I mean, he's covering his tracks slightly. In manifesto, um, covering his tracks. Well, he's he's trying to paint his own narrative here slightly. I feel. Go on. Um, trying to justify what he did and. I don't feel that it's particularly justifiable behaviour. And I think his own sense of right or wrong is very much kind of pigeonholed in his own behaviours and his own life experiences, which we're going to go on to talk about. But you can also kind of see his side when he's talking about the system and how they use physical force and power. But again, it's perspective. You've put me on the spot, Tom. <laughs> well, you wrote the quote. I thought you'd probably have an idea of what it meant. Nah, I just got the quote for you. For you me, did you? with a quote. Yeah, one that maybe you understand. Uh, but he's kind of saying that if there's a cause that's worthy of violence, then it's worth using it. But then he says that, you know, violence is taught to be wrong, except when the police use it and the military use it. So he's kind of saying people, other people justify it by different means as well, don't Spot they? Spot on. Yeah, I think you've, you've done really well there. Thank you, mate. That's all right. Next time. I've got a good one for next week, actually. Retention. Thanks for that, Ben. That's okay. <laughs> Should we talk about his childhood? Yes, go for his childhood and see if there's any... I thought we always say anything that led him where to where he ended up. I think there are some very clear and obvious moments which mm. shaped him. Definitely, but also very different. There's a lot of... I was fascinated by his childhood. I'll be, I'll be entirely honest with you. Well, hopefully the listeners are as well, Ben. Fantastic. Typing it was hard enough. Instead of saying Kaczynski... So I copy and pasted it. <laughs> so typing it out several times was hard enough this week we're going to just go by ted for the childhood instead of kaczynski because um, it's a minefield isn't it yes yeah, ted, ted c kaczynski. before a z and then a y <laughs> c theodore john kaczynski was born on the 22nd of may 1942 in chicago illinois other than ted being born on that particular day a few things happened play the jingle ben carter's interesting facts interesting facts are they i don't know interesting facts facts Oh, Are they interesting though? Well, uh, it's interesting you ask that. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. An, interesting, it's an interesting date. Um, Go on then. It marked, uh, so the 22nd of May 1942, haven't written it down, but I know for a fact it was a Friday. 
actually marked the beginning of the Townsville Mutiny. So what was that about? So uh, the Townsville Mutiny uh, over in Australia, basically a bunch of African-American soldiers were in Townsville and a number of the locals, as they were to the aboriginals of the time, began to be quite racist to them. There was about 600 African-American soldiers over there on Australian turf and it marked a bit of a siege. I expected there to be more deaths. There was one. Still a death, still a life lost. Um, yeah, yeah. You didn't want more deaths. You no. Thought be, you thought there'd be more. I thought, well, a, a mutiny. But it was really more of an uproar. And then also on, on this particular day in history, Mexico, I don't know where this came from. I mean, you guys are highly intelligent guys. Maybe you'll know. Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're intelligent as well. Thanks. <laughs> Mexico declared war on Germany, Italy, and Japan. That's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. So well, 1942, so... I know, but Mexico. Yeah, but did they just? do you mean they just joined forces with the rest of the world against Germany and, and their allies? Potentially, yeah. Mexico could have joined in. That would actually... There you go. Highly intelligent guy. I mean, if he, he could be wrong. I don't think he is. Dan? That sounds right, doesn't it? Because Germany... Sorry, I was just reading up about the, the mutiny. So that, cool. I don't, I don't, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Sorry about that. That's, no, 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 don't be sorry. Just educating myself. Hmm? Well, I, I told you. Not enough. <laughs> Did I pretty much get the mutiny right, Dan, otherwise? Yes, uh, one man was killed. But, but dozens were se- severely injured as well. So ah. Not sure why you forgot that then. Mm. And that was right, my thing about Mexico was... basically well, just, my thing, but you've... Well, yours was... I don't know why I go and start wars on Germany. But your initial reaction was war, Mexico. Yeah, then there's the date. Did they <clears> join <throat> in the Allies? Yeah. yeah. Well done, Tom. Well done, Mexico. So Ted was the first of two sons born to Polish immigrants, Theodore Richard... Ted Sr., and Wanda Teresa Kaczynski. The couple had their second son, David, who is a very interesting character, and we'll mention a lot more about him later on. He was born seven years after Ted was born, and the couple arrived in America as Catholic, but later became atheists. So Ted Sr. was a sausage maker, and Wanda worked as a clerical assistant. Now, Ted's mother, Wanda, had a real... Sounds like an awful job. It's pretty good. Now, Ted's mother, Wanda, had a real passion for books and learning new things. And this was a a, a passion and a bond that she would go on to share with her son, Ted. Now, although the family lived in very much a working class neighbourhood when Ted was born, his parents uh, were said to have been extremely frugal, but also extremely intelligent when it came to money. Now, according to Ted, they would save every penny they could earn and invest the money into various loan associations. And they would earn quite a lot of interest on these particular investments. So when Ted was nine months old, his whole body came up in quite a severe rash, formed by a number of swollen red bumps, which is just four rashes. <laughs> Not all of them. So when Ted was nine months old, his whole body came up in a quite a severe rash, and his parents immediately took him to the hospital, where he was diagnosed with a bad case of hives. And basically, the, doc- the doctors came in and they said, I hate to say I told you so. All right. The hospital staff administered various medications to the baby Ted. However, he was said to have experienced an almost immediate severe allergic reaction. And as a result of this, Ted was taken away from his parents and isolated in the hospital whilst doctors tried to understand what the problem was. Just to go back to my hives gag there, they basically said, I hate to say I told you so, he's got hives. That's how I should have said it. He's got the hives. 
so baby Ted was clearly in a great deal of pain, discomfort and confusion. And he was kept in isolation within the hospital for a couple of months. And during that time, the parents could only see him for two hours every week. So this incident haunted Ted's parents for a number of years, with his mother Wanda even claiming that Ted appeared emotionless for many months after this event. Beforehand, apparently he was quite chirpy and smiley. And as soon as he was out there, he was a different child altogether. So for many years after this, Ted was socially unresponsive and withdrawn. And as a result of being isolated on his own in the hospital, he very much feared being taken away or separated from his parents, particularly from his mother, who he was very, very close with. And he would often have nightmares about the experience. So yeah, not a, a very nice thing for a nine-month-old to go through. He would later dispute this, though, in his own words later on. He kind of swept this under the rug about it not being a, having a big effect on him, but because his th- parents were adamant that it did. Yeah, definitely. And this is a big thing that people point to in terms of what would later form him and form his actions. But I don't know. I think there are lots of other things that we're going to talk about that kind of moulded him to become mm. what he became. So apparently when Ted was a few years older, when his parents showed him photos of himself isolated in the hospital. He would become highly distressed and would actually physically recoil um, at the sight of these images. He would basically go on to suggest that it was a similar feeling to what he believed an animal must experience when caged, and he expressed a great deal of sympathy for those animals. So this incident aside, for the most part, Ted had a very happy and healthy childhood. He was introduced to the outdoors by his father from a very early age and would often go on various family outings and camping holidays to local woods and national parks with regular trips to Starved Rock National Park. Both Ted and David had a fondness for the outdoors and nature, which was generated by the fact that their father, Ted Sr., was extremely passionate about being outside amongst the wildlife. So when Ted turned six, he attended Sherman Elementary School in Chicago. And though he was known to be somewhat of a loner, Ted was also described as being friendly, polite and a very bright child who seemed to be healthy and well-adjusted. He also seemed to take to education naturally and displayed signs of being highly intelligent from a very early age. This is a trend that would stick with him for the rest of his childhood and through to his adult years. And interestingly, Ted went on to say that he believed most of the adults in his life, whilst he was a child and and teenager, cared more about Ted's brain than Ted's happiness. Which is uh, an interesting observation. And actually, yeah... I could, uh, I could yeah Ted's that. right he's right yeah well I think oh what a brain his parents his wonder was very impressed with the fact that he could actually maintain conversations for about quite high up high level literature from that point they were like oh kind of spurring him on very much so hmm. you can, it's kind of like having a sporty child and sporty parents but they're yeah. living through him with, with his, his intelligence so three years after Ted's younger brother David was born the Kaczynski family moved to Evergreen Park Illinois this was a far more affluent area compared to the working class neighbourhood the family had previously raised Ted in and there are photos of the family house yeah so the the, the, fa- the house looks nice I can confirm that much it's detached it's got a nice rounded garden around the property front and rear garden of course is what i meant um, but it looks like a nice looks like a nice house and i said the parents were smart with money and their investments and 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 being frugal uh, and that seems to have paid off because very nice house why do i feel like you've invested money in this house i've got several <laughs> shares i own the bathroom there's a spider in there yeah, like, no, fuck off <laughs> And as a result, Ted transferred to Evergreen Park Central Junior High School. It was here in fifth grade that Ted completed an IQ test, scoring him at 167, which enabled him to skip sixth grade entirely. So a little note on IQs. I feel like, you know, we've talked about IQs before on the pod. Usually lower end. Yeah. Albert Fish. Idiot. Twat. Yeah. So the average score on an IQ test is 100, and most people typically fall within the range of 85 to 114. 
Any score above 140 is considered a very high IQ, and a score over 160 is considered a genius IQ. And he's hitting 167 in fifth grade. Ed Kemper was 145. Oof, and he's a smart lad. Yeah, so he's that's considered high. But yeah, this is genius level we're talking about here. Probably the cleverest, he probably definitely is the cleverest person we've covered, isn't he? When he was born, the doctor goes, congratulations. It's a genius. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. No. Does that work burn it, it. Burn it. Burn it. What do you think you'd get, Ben? I'd be interested to see that. Probably around 114. I was thinking maybe 70s. I think people would like to watch me do it. How do you even do a test? Is it on online? You put it where you had to find it. Um, <laughs> That's fucking mean, man. <laughs> really? Yeah, I think it'd be good. We'll post your uh, score up on a story. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. You have to post it, even if it's bad. Yeah. What if it's really good? What? That'd be posted. People will be surprised and we'll have to double check that you did it all yourself. Cool. We'll get a link. Predictions in the comments? Yeah. Actually, no, don't talk about me. Oh, he hates it. <laughs> so Ted was clearly a very bright young man and he would later state that this was a hugely defining moment of his life. Skipping the sixth grade meant that he would be placed into classrooms and schedules with older students. In most cases, he was a leader and extremely confident, but when placed into older year classes, he became less confident and less sociable, which even resulted in him being bullied. He found it very hard to fit in with other children and became somewhat of an outcast. That's kind of, the, you know, being, he was a big fish in a small pond and then he's become a small fish in a big pond. But at the same time, I thought footballers, if you're an okay footballer, but you play football with really good footballers, you're going to get better. Right. So I was like... But I don't think him being in that year... He was still smarter than everyone else. Oh, yeah, So absolutely. surely he was still a big fish. So let him skip a couple of years. Yeah, well, the big fish... What happens if he skipped another year? Would he not be in the same year as his class? In a different pond. So would, it, but would, it be, would they be older than him? They'd be way older than him, Oh, okay. Yeah. By that logic, But if he yeah. didn't skip it, he'd be with people his, his own age. Yeah, and yeah. If, he went, if he was held back, then he'd be older than a lot How of How long were people. you held back for? <laughs> no, you weren't held back, were you? Sorry? You weren't held back? No. Nah. 114, I reckon, about that. 120 just above average you can fucking find the pond but yeah definitely uh, a fair point ted may have been academically prepared uh, to skip that grade but he was not socially or emotionally developed enough to be ready for this he actually some people have said he was actually quite although he's he a genius but he was also quite immature so he's very much book smart but not necessarily street smart and apparently in his spare time he'd very much enjoy hanging out with his younger brother seven years younger than him but he also enjoyed hanging out with his younger brother's friends as well so he's quite immature not ready for that step up this had a big and continued impact on him as he grew into a teenager so ted and his brother david were both highly intelligent children and very well regarded in the evergreen park neighborhood and though david was highly intelligent ted was considered exceptionally intelligent david's friends referring to ted as almost the next einstein the Kaczynski family generally kept to themselves, and although they were very well liked amongst neighbours, they were described as civic-minded folks who put their children and their education before anything else. And I think particularly when they were informed that, you know what, Ted's a genius, he's extremely intelligent, highly intelligent, I think that's what then encouraged them to push him even harder, push him even more into his studies. So Ted was an incredibly shy teenager and seemed to only open up to his younger brother. If he was placed into any kind of social environment or made to introduce himself to or interact with other people, he became incredibly withdrawn and anxious, which you can understand. I mean, if he's never had the time to really develop with his own year and get confident within that, especially with how he's already seen you and his parents as kind of not looking after his happiness and pushing him forward just for, for his intelligence, mm -hmm. he kind of felt people were judging him or he's been 
brought out to kind of show off a bit about him as well. So the family felt that Ted was academically gifted but socially delayed. This was to the point where his mother Wanda considered enrolling Ted in a study that was being conducted by Bruno Bettelheim regarding autistic children and young people. Wanda decided against doing this after meeting Bettelheim. She felt that he was far too cold and abrupt to be interacting with her son. Sadly, you know, later on in his life, some other tests that he would be put under didn't end well. Mm-hmm. So whilst at high school, Ted became absolutely fascinated with mathematics. He would spend hours on end studying and solving various advanced mathematical problems. The more time Ted spent doing this, the more intense his passion and fixations became on the subject. This would not be limited to school time. He would regularly shut himself away at home in order to continue to work on advanced problems. As a result of his passion for mathematics and problem solving, he did end up meeting a number of like-minded teenagers who were also intensely interested in solving advanced mathematical problems. They formed a bond with one another and also ended up forming somewhat of a gang together. The Briefcase Boys. Is that what you've come up with? No, this is out there in the public domain. Due to the fact that they all carried briefcases, which is an equation that does add up. Case closed. Fantastic. I couldn't find online uh, whether they chose that name themselves or it was given to them. And I'm on the fence about that. Briefcase boys. Yeah. We should call ourselves the briefcase boys. I don't think you'd ever say that. Just one of them looking around and going, he's got one. He's got one. I've got one. He's got one. Oh, Matt, he's got a satchel. I think that's one of the things you're given. Yeah. And Ted also became fascinated with chemistry, and the more intelligent students ended up playing pranks on the less intelligent students, occasionally making small, harmless explosions, I'm doing quotation marks there, out of different chemical reactions. Ted got a real thrill from this. Despite Ted being very much a loner at high school, he did take part in various extracurricular activities. He played the trombone for the school's marching band. You ever played a brass instrument? You ever blown one? No. Never put one between your lips and give it a good blow? No. No, fair. Dan? It's very hard. You got to do this, don't you? Right yeah. out the side of your mouth. Side of your mouth. I thought it was there's a technique. To, maybe that's what Dan just did. I can't see it. No, he didn't. He didn't do it. The side of the and he was also a member of various school clubs, including the Coin Club, Ooh. the Biology Club, Ooh. the German Club, and, and the Mathematics Club. With one classmate noting, he was never really seen as a person, as an individual personality. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak, like Krang. Yeah, could Krang walk? He had legs. He was, the body. he was a brain inside a... I didn't know he had legs. I thought it was just a bit of matter. He was inside a shredder. body that Not walked. Shredder. Crunk. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Krang was a brain in a, isn't it a floating brain in water tank and there was a body that was more Oh, around. sorry. What's the villain in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that has like a little brain in his waist? That's what I'm saying. It's Krang. Is that Krang? Yeah. He hasn't got legs. He's in a body. So that's walking it's around. It's not his body though. That's the whole point. He's a walking, walking brain. Bra- yeah, but that's not a walking brain. That's a brain that's got assisted movement. <laughs> yeah, Krang hasn't got legs. No one talks to the other guy. It's like the Schnapple moment. Not, it's not really. How are you spelling Krang? <laughs> K-R-A-N-G. It's a hill I'm prepared to die on. Kill Ben. Gully Gums. Please do. What Please. are you saying, Danny Boy? Legs or not? He's got little robotic legs, hasn't he? Yeah. But they're not. But it's not a brain. Mean? But a brain wouldn't be walking, Ben. That's the point. But they called him a walking brain. Yes. The reference works. (laughs) (laughs) So as Ted advanced through various mathematical problems, he also advanced his peers. And he ended up leaving the briefcase boys for a more advanced mathematical group, having mastered all of their material. They were called the suitcase sirs. I made that one up. Um, That's the way you tell them. 
He was also enrolled to be one of his high school's five national merit finalists, which there is a nice little picture of Ted and the other four of, which will pop up now. And with this enrolment, his teachers and parents both encouraged him to immediately apply to Harvard. Ted was so academically gifted that just like the sixth, he was able to skip the 11th grade. So that, right, this part annoyed, annoyed me a little bit. Yeah, I initialed it just so I remembered to talk. But my IQ is like 122 or something like that. It's, it's probably, I think, I think you'd be lucky to get 80. Go on. Well, that's going up gradually because you said 70. I said lucky. <laughs> so they're pushing him very hard to skip these uh, grades. You're too smart for that. Go on, advance, advance. But I think most of the biggest lessons in life come from failures and mistakes and, and learning from those. Which you won't be making those mistakes. Because he's too smart. Yeah. Fuck. Are you learning from these ones? Because you don't seem Trying to. to. <laughs> Trying to. Week on week. Are the adults making these decisions for him? Because he is highly intelligent, but he can also, he's got a mind of his own. He's a walking brain. Walking brain, exactly. exactly. But your childhood is your, your best years of your life, according to some people. Like, wouldn't you want to make it last a bit longer rather than skipping through, you know, skipping grades, going straight into higher education? I but, guess that probably excited him a bit, but yeah, it would annoy me if that was me. If I was a genius, that would annoy me. I don't know if it would. Maybe you'd be able to understand why it's happening more. I think it would just annoy me. Would it? Yeah. But I want to make mistakes in lower classes. But you wouldn't. You're a genius. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I skip another? So did you get your point over across there? I don't think so. And by spending one of his summers at a summer school for gifted students, Ted was able to graduate high school at the age of 15. For the UK listeners, typically between 17 and 18 years old when you graduate high school. So that's, yeah, he's 15. So he's, yeah, he's moving quickly. He is indeed. He is indeed. Better yet, before he'd even turned 16, Ted's application to Harvard was accepted and he would go on to enter the university on a scholarship the following year. So notable Harvard alumni, basically a ton of different US presidents went there. Not the bad. Loads, loads of them. Rupert Murdoch, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and then there was also Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. They both attended, but would later drop out. And whilst many uh, celebrated Ted's success, some felt that he was emotionally unprepared for his journey to Harvard, with one former classmate noting, they packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. He didn't even have a driver's license. And I don't know if that was a clever pun about him having a van loaded up and not being able to drive it. I think it was just... A metaphor. It wouldn't be clever anyway. I thought it was clever. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. But yeah, I thought that was a very interesting comment. Harvard do have measures in place to protect young and gifted students for this. So as a result, Ted was given specific accommodation at number eight Prescott Street, which essentially housed students that were in similar uh, circumstances from all over the country in a more intimate setting. So essentially none of what you would see on... Uh, the movie The Social Network, you know, feeding chickens to chickens. Ted's reputation for being a gifted and lonesome student continued at Harvard, and he went on to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree in Mathematics after spending four years at the university. He had a Harvard degree at the age of 20, which is quite a feat. 
We haven't talked very much about Ted's relationships with females to this point, though he did have an interest in girls. He very rarely dated or socialised with the opposite sex. Whenever he did, he would often spend time talking about his academic achievements rather than his interests of trying to get to know his dates. See. It's like you with the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but baby, it's two million players. <laughs> Have you got live insurance? You need it. Don't say oh, that no, on no. a date. No. <laughs> you need it. <clears throat> that was a playful joke. <laughs> But again, I feel like this with Ted wouldn't have happened if they just let him learn from his mistakes. As well, if his, if his parents are pushing him on and bragging about his brain, you probably think that's the most interesting thing about him. Walking so brain, yeah. He would begin to quickly identify flaws in them or reasons to reject them. In his world, he wanted to reject them before they could reject him. So Ted's time at Harvard wasn't as straightforward as we have just made it sound. It did include some very turbulent times. In Ted's second year at the university, he volunteered to participate in one of Henry Murray's studies. Now, Murray was a Harvard psychologist. and the... Previously, before that, he was involved with what was the CIA beforehand. Oh. And interrogation techniques was his thing. Very interesting. Interesting chap, Murray. Bit of a Oh, absolutely. The study was described by author Alston Chase as a purposely brutalising psychological experiment that essentially analysed the influence and effects of the following task. Participants would be told that they were to prepare to debate fellow students on their personal philosophy and beliefs surrounding their aspirations and goals in life. So basically, I want you to tell me about what your hopes and dreams are and what you believe the purpose of life is. The participants must write an essay regarding their beliefs and aspirations. The essays would be completed and given to an anonymous research assistant. The anonymous research assistant would then essentially verbally berate and belittle each participant regarding their goals and beliefs. But basically these, these attacks wouldn't just serve to, to go at their statements, their essays. The group would then use electrodes on each of the volunteers in order to measure their reactions and analyse the results. Kind of like the final stage of Apprentice when they're talking to the people with their plan for the business and the guy's like, you're, you're not prepared! And just slagging them off to the face. Kind of like that, but Very, a, lot, yeah, no, well put. a lot more fierce. The chap who kind of started this, this research was essentially seeing how people respond with interrogations, people being verbally abused, essentially. That was the idea. Yeah. And Ted was kind of very insistent that he wasn't going to break and that it wouldn't affect him. And to the stage where he went back every week for three years yeah. to kind of prove himself. But he basically was having his ideology and his way he looked at life completely ripped apart by people he respected. Yeah. People who were, you know, high up people at Harvard. It's making him question everything. Suddenly him being the smartest guy in the room, he's been told he's wrong. So I imagine that'd be very jarring for someone, you know, in this position. This uh, study would go on to sort of measure their reactions and, and physiological behaviours. It would last for almost three years, during which time Ted spent close to 250 hours participating in the study and the verbal attacks and humiliations that he would endure would basically happen on a weekly basis so for three years he was abused every week he showed up brought cans of shandy cherry aid tried to do a little bit of talking every now and again and just the people around him berated him yeah, but and eventually he fucking was... snapped so Ted himself would claim to resent Murray, the experiment, as well as the research assistants involved as a result of his continued psychological abuse. He also felt that his privacy was consistently being invaded. However, Ted would also claim that he felt that this study had no lasting impact on his life, attitude or mental health, stating, I'm quite confident that my experiences with Professor Murray had no significant effect on the course of my life. In the the series uh, Manhunt Unibomber, obviously it's dramatised, so you can't take anything from facts from it, but it kind of was he was going there proud of what he'd written the ideas he had 
and it being you know him being told he's wrong and questioned and prodded and whatnot yeah i want this must be horrible it'd be interesting to know how much his theories did change or if they didn't change or if it even Mm. made even back him up even further because yeah as i said he went there yeah to over 250 hours of just being told you're wrong yeah this for me is a significant influence on what he would go on to later do compared to the the hives and the allergic reaction the hives thing made me think if he came back from the hospital very different Mm-hmm. obviously this is based on absolutely nothing but in terms of him because he was very young at that age it felt like he had a bad experience at the hospital itself yeah. which then made him like kind of quiet and isolated yeah but with this i mean the ideology that he'd go on to kind of and that he might consider actively fought for um fought against that's not really shaped by what happened here yeah 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 but you could tell that this might have you know made him his way his brain works slightly different. Mm-hmm. That's probably way yeah, way it would work. Definitely. And Tom mentioned the Manhunt Unabomber dramatized series, but there's also then there's two of them available on Netflix at the moment. Uh, uh, Unabomber in his own words, and he does talk about this, but again, he's very much of the opinion that it didn't get to him, mm. it didn't bother him, it didn't shape him. Whereas many people have theorized that this, in fact, was the biggest influence on Ted's later criminal behaviors. Others also argue that Ted was not the only individual to take part in the study, though it cannot be disproven that he received the most or the least abuse. And some have speculated that this study could have perhaps been linked to MKUltra and the use of various mind control techniques. After graduating from Harvard, Ted enrolled in the University of Michigan and undertook masters and doctoral degrees in maths. Interestingly, Michigan was the third choice of university behind both Berkeley and Chicago. But Ted opted for Michigan due to the fact that despite Berkeley and Chicago both offering him a place, neither would offer the same financial or career benefits that Michigan would. Michigan offered Ted a teaching role as well as an annual grant of over $21,000. And the other thing about what Ted was studying, and he would kind of jokingly say about it, the maths he was studying, it wasn't things that he could actually apply in real life. It was problems which are kind of problems for problems sake. It wasn't anything that's going to, it wasn't linked to like science or anything like that. It was was purely mathematics, which didn't really have much of a use. Yeah. And some of like the dissertations that he would write would just be so elaborate and so advanced that there would only be a handful of people in the entire country that would really appreciate the work he'd done, but really for the work it was rather than actual use from it. So from this, old habits seemed to follow Ted while studying and teaching in Michigan. Ted was extremely dedicated to his studies and to his work. Not much of note took place whilst at Michigan. However, a couple of years into his time there did result in Ted kind of questioning his sexuality. And this is something I did not know about the case. But for a couple of months during the year of 1966, Ted experienced several intense sexual fantasies about becoming and being a female. This even resulted in him booking a meeting with a psychiatrist with the aim of undergoing a gender transition. However, Ted changed his mind in the waiting room of the psychiatrist at the very last minute. So after this happened, Ted felt humiliated, lost and confused, and he began to experience intense feelings of anger, hatred and violence towards others, particularly the psychiatrist and people he felt had wronged him in the past. And he wanted to devise a plan in order to kill them all, which is really quite an escalation. It is. He said, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to, and I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then, there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. After gaining his master's and doctoral degrees, Ted took a role as an assistant professor at the University of Berkeley, California, where he assisted with research and also taught. His teaching style was said to have been incredibly rigid and he would be quick into frustration when his pupils were not absorbing information as quickly as he could. He would have hated me. Oh yeah, fucking hell. Yeah. Walk walk straight back out again. 
Probably. Ted was not a very popular teacher by any means. It is said that he was very socially awkward and almost unable to communicate in front of large groups. He would mostly read straight from textbooks, not answer any questions when prompted by his pupils. The whole idea of teaching almost appeared uncomfortable to him. There was a complete disconnect with his students. But I think the faculty quite liked him, didn't they? They, yeah. actually, they actually thought he was very good at what he did and they, they respected his intelligence and he was able to solve problems which they never thought would be solved, etc, etc. But yeah, in terms of him to students, it just didn't really work. Yeah, definitely. And and I think it was that was always a theme through his life, talking to large groups of people or new people. He mm. just, that was not his thing. Public speaking. Feel, yeah, absolutely. So just a year and a half into the role, in 1969, Ted resigned without any kind of explanation and he moved back in with his parents. And apparently when you work your, your, your way up to that level of role assistant professor very rarely do people just sort of nah I'm out they continue to progress and continue to work their way up and certainly stay in that field in the field of specialism for a long period of time but he just yeah out of the blue didn't tell anyone where he was going or what he was doing he left the field maybe he had hay fever (laughs) doesn't really work but neither did he he didn't want to work there he left fantastic to go to a field which was a wood But we'll get on to that. When, when he moved back in with his parents, he began to ponder his existence as well as his next step in life. And he also began to harbour a sincere hatred for technology, sociology and the current climate of American culture. So uh, during this kind of two year period living with his parents, he, he, he spent a lot more time again reunited with his brother. They David. Loved David. Yeah, David. We said we'd talk about him again. He came back uh, up. And uh, they both loved the outdoors. Throughout this period of time, Ted was looking for some vacant land to purchase in uh, the wilderness. He went through various uh, attempts to buy land, but they weren't successful. And eventually, he found a remote area in Lincoln, Montana, where he was able to follow through with his purchase. And together with the help of David, ended up building a small wood cabin. And again, when he got this land and built the cabin on it, no one else was about. So on the move to his cabin in the woods, Ted said... I wanted physical freedom. I wanted to get away from the cities and civilization. I just wanted to be a hermit. There's no doubt about the actual reason I dropped out of the technological system. It reduces people to gears in a giant machine. It takes away our autonomy and our freedom. Evidently, Ted wanted a simple life. He wanted his own space. He wanted to live life on his own terms. He wanted his freedom. He lived in the cabin without any electricity or running water. That'd be hard work, wouldn't it? Mm. Mm. I I love the idea of going off the grid, but do you? Yeah, I do. I why you post everything on Instagram then? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a slave to trends, but also I'm a big fan of plumbing. A big fan of plumbing. Yeah, the size of of your movements, you you need a big big plumbing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Just roll, just roll with it, guys. And he began working odd jobs whilst also receiving regular and significant financial support from his worried parents. He would claim he needed money to attend medical appointments. They'd be sending him a lot of money. So what's he well. doing with it? Well, he's buying materials. Yeah, no, he's, he's making nicking them from certain yards. Well, but also, so again, I'll ask you again. Yeah, what's he doing with that money, Ben? Just food shopping, shopping, big shop, yeah. big shop, doing the big, big shop. shop. Mm. Mm. So Ted would ride a bicycle into town if he needed anything, but try to avoid this for the most part, as he didn't enjoy interacting with the locals. He became more and more concerned that his ability to live a simple life was under threat by tourists holidaying in Montana, as well as people building other cabins around the land. So unfortunately uh, for Ted, I mean, he'd finally got his land, he'd finally got his cabin, but the land he'd purchased, he actually purchased them from a large timber yard who were regularly uh, logging uh, around his cabin. And on one occasion, 
uh, when Ted was in his, I mean, he enjoyed the solitude. He enjoyed just shutting himself away, reading a good book. And whilst uh, Ted was in his cabin, two men on dirt bikes drove past not far from his cabin. And this absolutely infuriated Ted. You could say it rattled him. And he saw that the bikes had parked up outside another cabin not far from his. So what Ted did mm. was basically wait until they left the cabin. Yeah. Sneak up to the cabin. He's just going to leave a note, surely. That's what you do, isn't Axe it? in hand. Axe in, axe in hand. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he basically... He didn't have a big dinner, did he? Well, he had time, actually. Yeah, it's funny you ask. He oh. had a huge dinner, actually. I don't know why I even asked that. Go on. What did he he had a big one. So he smashed the cabin up, first of all. Then you'll never guess what he did after that. Oh, maybe just apologised and left quickly. No one was there for him to apologise oh, to. Right. So he looked around and all he could see was a bathtub. Okay. So he got in it. N- next to the toilet, though. Yeah, he's, he sort of overlooked that. Must have been a big dinner. if, he, if Huge he, dinner. Yeah. Turkey. Uh, Twizzlers. Okay. And basically got into the bathtub. Yeah. Dropped his trousers. Ooh. Dropped his pants. Americans think he just dropped his trousers twice there, but go on. Sorry, for the Americans, dropped his boxers. Pa- pants. And his uh, pants and then his boxers, yeah. Yep. And he just did a big fat shit. Played poo sticks for one. Yep, in the bathtub. Did a big old shit and then he left. So he made the decision basically to leave his own excrement in the bathtub of this particular cabin, smash the cabin up before returning to his own. I love how he had to put his own excrement. Yeah, he did, yeah. So, I'm leaving my shit in there. Yeah, um, <laughs> he left the of... log in the log cabin. The police did ask uh, Ted, because he was known to kind of walk around and frequent the area. Yeah, had he seen anyone kind of go around making trouble? And he said, no. And they're like, oh, well, if Ted hasn't seen it. And he just tucks the axe in his pocket. And... Yeah. Just scratches his butt because he didn't wipe. So Ted's cabin was simple by comparison. Um, it contained just one small single bed, two chairs, storage trunks, a gas stove, and many different books by many different authors. So a favourite of Ted's was Jack's Alul's The Technological Society. Oh. Ted felt the book was finally someone speaking everything that he'd been thinking. It essentially became his Bible. So whilst in his cabin, Ted was also visited by his father multiple times. His father was very impressed by Ted's outdoorsmanship, including his hunting and organic farming skills. However, Ted's father was later diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and would subsequently take his own life by shooting himself at the family home. Ted felt helpless by the entire situation. So Ted wouldn't actually go back to the funeral. He, he, made, he rang rather than going back. He rang to console his mother. There was a bit of a weird um, relationship between him and his parents at this stage. When they'd come and visit, he'd be very polite, very nice when they're there. But when they'd get home, he'd send them a letter basically kind of damning them for what they put them through. So it was very, he'd be really nice to their face. But when they leave, he'd send like, he loved to write like 12 page letters to them basically mm-hmm. saying how they did them wrong. So it's very, very unfortunate. So in his cabin, Ted became more bitter and more angry by developments made in the proximity of his land. He would begin to intentionally sabotage or disrupt building works close to his cabin, including using arson and booby traps. However, on one particular hike to his favourite nature spot, Ted noticed that there were now far too many other people around him, and this almost caused an internal switch to flick. So never know about the timber yard. He did one night, they had a really loud um, saw they'd use, and he ran it one night when there and just threw stones at it, so it didn't work. Cost him lots of money to to repair it. So he kind of, for a very intelligent guy, he just casual vandalism. Yeah, and it was all kind of over people just making noise. Yeah, it would have been difficult to let live next to him. Yeah. So on this particular nature spot and the kind of escalations of his feelings, Ted said, It's kind of rolling country, not flat. And when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-day's hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. 
I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found that they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on that I decided, rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. And it is here that Ted's plans escalate. It's also here that we're going to go into the timeline of the Unabomber case. 25th of May, 1978. Ted Kaczynski's first bomb is discovered after listing the return address on the exterior of the letterbox package to that of a Mr Buckley Christ, a materials engineering professor at Northwestern University, Chicago, Illinois. Christ, who does not recognise the package, immediately becomes suspicious and calls campus security. Officer Terry Marker is called to the scene and proceeds to open the parcel. Fortunately for him, it is an unsophisticated bomb which only partially detonates and thankfully only causes minor injuries to Marker. Between bombs number one and two, Ted decides to move back to his hometown of Lombard. Better support. Illinois to take a job at the rubber factory, because everyone makes mistakes, where his father used to work and where his younger brother David is currently working as a supervisor. I wonder if Johnny worked there. It is during this period that Ted becomes infatuated with a female colleague after going out on a few dates. Ted excitedly shares the news with his brother that the woman has kissed him. Oh. Mm. Unfortunately for Ted, though, his strong feelings are not reciprocated and the colleague explains that she feels that they would be better off as friends. Oh. Thought being there, eh, Ben? We have, sir. Tom. Pardon? <laughs> what did you say, sir? We have, sir. Sir Tom. Deeply hurt and disappointed, Ted proceeds to spread crass remarks about the woman all around the plant. We've all been there. So David recalls his brother as being extremely upset over the situation and awkwardly has to have a conversation with him regarding the slander he is spreading. David's warnings fall on deaf ears and Ted continues to spread hatred amongst the workplace towards this woman, going so far as to post unpleasant limericks he had written about her on the walls of the plant. After Ted ignores his initial warning, David feels that he has no choice but to fire his brother for his actions. Getting fired by your younger brother. Mm, I'd rub him up the wrong way, probably. So first, Ted took this as a betrayal. He always looked at his brother as, you know, very much his ally. And, you know, he's been fired for this. But as time would go past on, he did eventually forgive him for his actions. Yes, this won't be the last time that they'll have a disagreement. Absolutely. Upon his dismissal, Ted returns to his cabin in Montana and begins plotting his next bomb. 9th of May 1979, just under a year later, Northwestern University is targeted again. This time a small package that could easily be mistaken for a birthday present is left on a classroom table where it is stumbled upon by graduate student John Harris. Upon opening, the device is triggered and the bomb explodes, leaving Harris with minor cuts and burns but thankfully nothing more serious. Later on, FBI agents will discover Ted's secretly coded diaries of which he will depict the disappointing results of bomb number two in the following way. I had hoped that the victim would be blinded or have his hands blown off. He has escalated quite a lot, obviously, throughout this time. He's already shown moments of senseless violence in terms of, you know, vandalism and stuff. But mm-hmm. going to the stage where he's wanting to kill people seems, you know, quite the leap. Yeah, and also, I mean, this has just been picked up by a, a grad student, which I assume wasn't his intended target. But there's so there's so much opportunity for innocent people to be killed mm. as a result of his actions, which I feel like he's got kind of tunnel vision for the, the hierarchy he's targeting. Mm. I think he's tar- tarring them all the same brush, really, because I don't think that he had exact targets. As we're about to go into, he did target, you know, airlines as well, so he couldn't have had a specific target there either. So the 15th of November 1979, later the same year, Ted builds his third bomb with the intention of blowing up a domestic airline flight 
American Airlines flight number 444. So this device has been designed to explode once the plane reaches the highest point of altitude. However, by a huge trick of luck, a faulty mechanism fails to detonate the bomb appropriately, and although the package starts to produce smoke, the crew are alerted and are able to make an emergency landing and safely evacuate everyone from on board. As you mentioned with the first couple bombs, they were very basic as bombs go, you know, someone actually opening the thing and not actually having folks to wounds. So he was kind of very, you know, he was putting things like little end, ends of matches in them and old wires and wooden boxes. It was very kind of uh, basic, but there you know he's making a bomb which will detonate by the highest altitude it's, it's you can see Still he's sophisticated to an extent he's he evolving his tactic obviously it didn't work the way he wanted it to work but he's quite quickly learning different techniques here as uh, so the links are being made amongst the authorities who now realise they have a serial bomber on their hands the name Unibomber is created and given to the unknown terrorist so the name is basically University and Airline Bomber put together for Unibomber 10th of June 1980 that's my anniversary explosive no that's not 1980. I wasn't even born then. How old were you then? 10th of June, 1980. Kaczynski's next bomb is sent directly to the Lake Forest home of United Airlines President Percy Wood, who opens the delivered package and is left needing intensive care after the bomb explodes, causing severe injuries to his hands and face. Ted's bombs are becoming more sophisticated, and this particular bomb has been created by placing the device inside a hollowed-out book called Ice Brothers by the author, Sloane Wilson. The 8th of October 1981, a brown paper package is discovered in a hallway at the University of Utah, Salt Lake City. The parcel is discovered by a maintenance worker who, aware of the recent goings-on, alerts security and ensures the campus be evacuated. The bomb is safely defused and thankfully no one is injured in this case. The 5th of May 1982, Kaczynski's sixth bomb... <coughs> Sheesh bomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fucking hell, please. Sorry. Shish bomb, shish bomb. You're my shish bomb. 5th of May 1982. Kaczynski's sixth bomb is sent to Patrick Fisher, the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University, Tennessee. Fisher's assistant, Janet Smith, opens the package in Fisher's absence and the letter bomb detonates upon doing so, leaving her with serious shrapnel related injuries and burns to her hands. July 2nd, 1982, bomb number 7 is sent, targeting the University of California, Berkeley. The package is discovered in the staff room by engineering professor Diogenes Ankalekos, who innocently opens it. The pipe bomb contained within the parcel explodes, and Diogenes is severely injured, with all the skin on his fingers being burnt off. After bomb number 7, the Unabomber mysteriously disappears for the next three years. The authorities and general public begin to forget the reign of terror that has been inflicted on them for the last four years, and day-to-day life appears to get back to normal. However, Unabomber has other ideas and decides to reappear on the spring of 1985. They also, during this time, didn't know, you know, if he'd been arrested. It's like when other people who have been, you know, been committing lots of crimes, they stopped for a certain period of time, the BTK killer. Zodiac. They think, oh, maybe he's been arrested, maybe he's died. So they kind of, oh, maybe this, you know, this is all over. But sadly, this was not the case. May the 15th, 1985. Once again, the University of California, Berkeley, finds itself at the centre of the Unabomber's campaign. Engineering student John Hauser discovers a small white box in one of the campus classrooms. Curious, he opens the package and such is the force of the explosion that four of his fingers are completely blown off his right hand. He had been wearing a ring on one of those fingers and when it hit the classroom wall, the impact of the blast left a significant imprint of the ring in the wall. Which is just unbelievable to think of. Mm. Hauser is disabled for life and even loses the sight in one eye as a result of the bomb. 
It should be noted that Ted's devices are becoming increasingly complex and experimental. He also enjoys leaving clues within the homemade bombs, specifically etching the initials FC into many of his works. FC is short for Freedom Club, a supposed organization who Kaczynski claims to be a part of, when in reality he is the only member. He states that the ultimate objective of the group is the destruction of modern industrial society in every part of the world. The remainder of 1985 sees bombs 9, 10 and 11 target the Boeing Airline Company, the University of Michigan and also claiming the first life. Thankfully, bomb 9 is defused and no one at the Boeing Airline Company is harmed. Bomb number 10, however, inflicts serious harm upon James McConnell, a professor of psychology, and his assistants, Niklaus Suino, when they open the letter bomb together. Devastatingly, in the car park of a Sacramento computer store, on December 11th, 1985, Unabomber's 11th device takes the life of 38-year-old store owner, Hugh Scrutton, who spots a brown paper bag that has been dumped by a rubbish bin near the entrance to his office. The bag explodes as Scrutton unknowingly picks it up and it kills him instantly. The nail bomb is Unabomber's most deadly to date, but unfortunately, it won't be the last. We've mentioned his coded diaries earlier on, and in relation to this particular event, Kaczynski expresses pleasure because he has managed to increase the power of his bombs. He also demonstrates delight over the fact he has killed someone, humanely in his own words, and is sure that the victim probably never felt a thing. Two years later, on February 20th, 1987, Kaczynski plants another bomb under similar conditions. So with the press uh, reporting on these these incidents, one thing they would mention, he'd, he'd be very keen to read the papers and see you know, him being spoken about. And he got, he got quite a kick out of people saying that he was progressing in his bomb making as well. He kind of took that as essentially feedback. Yeah, feedback. So the 20th of February 1987, Salt Lake City, Utah, Gary Wright, another computer store owner, spots something out of place in the car park of his store. On going over to investigate what is placed on the floor, he comes across what appears to be a small pile of wood. He picks it up with the intention of moving it, and in doing so, he detonates the device, narrowly escaping with his life, but not without significant injuries. Bomb number 12 is a turning point in the Unabomber case, as it's the first time the suspect is actually seen. So he's been very careful this time not to be seen. He'd also, you know, he was known in the area where the cabin was to be seen, quite, you know, quite dirty, long hair, uncut beard. But what he would do is he would shave himself, make him clean, look, not look out of place, travel to these different places and place these bombs and not be kind of stick out. He'd yeah. come back home again, avoid anyone. So he would eventually grow his beard and hair again, get dirty again. So people just assume they haven't seen him for weeks. Yeah. So it could never really count for where he'd been or his movement had been. He was very like forensically aware as well. So no DNA left on mm. any of the devices, no fingerprints. Like, wasn't using the same materials twice. Yeah. It was, yeah, very, obviously he's highly intelligent, genius. So with the, with the bombs he was making as well, he had, you know, around the area he was, there's like scrapyards as well, he'd take lots of wires from there and different items from there, which would be all from different cars and different machinery, so they couldn't really trace where these things were coming from. So a computer store worker mentions how she witnessed a moustache man wearing a grey hoodie and aviator sunglasses crouching down in the store's parking lot. Task Force immediately sets to work to produce a composite sketch, which goes on to become one of the most famous police sketches of all time, and an image synonymous with the Unabomber 17-year bombing spree. So yeah, it's the one that I'm sure everyone's seen before, it's the one that Phil took some inspiration for for the intro as well. Shout out to Phil. 
It's also we'll go on to kind of discuss a bit more in detail. It's a bit of a cult like yeah, image, yeah, in terms of people kind of flying the flag for kind of some of the things that Ted stood for. So the media is whipped up into a frenzy, and the sketch is shown on screens and in print throughout the states. The Unibomb is officially the most wanted man in America right now. See, this search was quite staggering. It went on. It cost over fifty million the FBI to yeah. do this search, and it's the biggest manhunt to date. So clearly, slightly spooked that he'd been spotted, and the image broadcast to the world. Kaczynski lies low for the next six years, and even starts reducing his contact with his family members. His regular letters to his brother David decrease, and when David writes to Ted in 1989, informing him that he has found love with Linda, his future wife, and is looking forward to building a life together with her, he is shocked by the hostility that Ted demonstrates towards him in his response. A 20-page letter accusing him of lacking the integrity to lead a pure life. He did like to write lots and lots, he loved, didn't he? Yeah. you think he'd be like, oh, fuck, Ted has written another letter. <laughs> So Ted becomes increasingly withdrawn over the next couple of years, even sending an aggressive letter to his mother in 1991, which accuses her of being insensitive and cruel during his upbringing. He even blames her for his lack of social skills, even going so far to write, because the harm you did me can never be undone. In 1993, after six years away from the spotlight, Ted Kaczynski reappears, this time with a vengeance. So this is bomb number 13, and bomb number 13 is sent to the California home of geneticist Charles Epstein on the 22nd of June 1993. The letter bomb results in Epstein losing his fingers and bursting his eardrums. In the same week, on the 24th of June, bomb number 14 is also sent through the post. This time it finds David Galerta, a computer science professor at Yale University who loses his fingers, his eyesight and his hearing on the right side of his body upon opening the package in the computer science lab of the university. Around the same time as the June attacks, Kaczynski mails a letter to the New York Times claiming responsibility for the most recent bombings. The letter is handed over to the FBI who conclude that it is from the Unabomber, however they are unable to deduce any further information from the letter such as the type of paper, the typewriter ink used or the postal stamp. They do, however, come across a note that has been imprinted on the surface of the paper. Call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7pm. Has the Unabomber finally made a mistake? Basically, like, you know, we used to have pages of a school book, Ben, and you're drawing something, or you're writing something, the next pages are imprinted on. They, they believe that he had written something on top of the paper, therefore leaving a mistake there. Or is he fucking with them because he has done things before? He would personally put some hairs and things, stuff like that, just trying to throw people off the scent. So the hunt for Nathan R gets underway, but not surprisingly, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Nathan R's scattered across North America. And the hunt for the mysterious contact produces nothing in the way of new evidence. By this point, a huge amount of resources and funds are being ploughed into the investigation. Over 150 agents are assigned to the Unabomber case, making it the largest and most expensive manhunt in FBI history. As the two bombs of 1993 send shockwaves around the country, Kaczynski is plotting his next move and details in his diary how he wishes to hit an Exxon exec. And uh, an Exxon exec would work for a company called Exxon, Tom, which basically are in the gas sector. Something you can relate to. He annotates how he could send them a bomb under the ruse of an environmentally orientated book, which would mention the concerns he has over the impact the oil industry has on the natural world. 
So bomb 15. On the 10th of December 1994, he targets an advertising executive, Thomas Mosser, at his home in North Caldwell, New Jersey. As the package is addressed to him personally, Mosser proceeds to open it and is instantly killed when the bomb explodes. A $1 million reward is offered out to the public for anyone who can provide information that will identify the bomber. What is to be the 16th and final of Kaczynski's bombs is sent through the post to Gilbert Murray, president of the California Forestry Association, who opens it on April 24, 1995 in his Sacramento office and who, unfortunately, also loses his life in the blast. The scene is described as so terrible that Murray's family are only left with his feet to bury. During his reign of terror, the Unabomber has also been working on a 35,000-word manifesto, which he sends to both the New York Times and the Washington Post on the 28th of June 1995. He demands they publish the article, threatening more bombs and death if they do not. The FBI examine the writing and deduce that yes, this is indeed the work of the Unabomber, after noting his use of the FC Freedom Club throughout. So the name of the Unabomber Manifesto is Industrial Society and Its Future. It's a passionate essay highlighting Kaczynski's key beliefs in the harm that technology and the evolution of industry has had on human potential. As a result of humans being forced to adapt to machinery and new technologies, their freedom has been suppressed and their natural habitat destroyed. He places a lot of blame on big government and big business, holding scientists personally responsible for selfishly seeking power in such a reckless way. A lot of people have read this and they do agree with a lot of the, the points he's made. I think a lot of the points do still very much stand up today. You see the kind of harm that technology has on people and even just their mental health. A lot of people nowadays, social media, even Instagram, people looking at things and affecting mm. my life should be that way. It's had a negative impact on people. A lot of the things he says rings true. This is a case I very much wanted to cover. And after watching the direct um, dramatized series, it showed how even people that were searching for him kind of agreed with certain aspects of what he was saying. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. There's bits I'll go into in the aftermath as well about correlating people to nowadays. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting i think a lot of people would agree that technology has had an adverse effect and it's not all been positive and it has prevented the human potential as well but some people would argue that is human potential and it is progression so mm-hmm. so yeah as tom mentioned he does make some very good points which don't actually sound like the ramblings of a madman many of the points that kaczynski makes are still highly relevant today so one of the points he says is the continued development of technology will worsen the situation it will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world it will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. There is somewhat of a moral dilemma as to whether to go ahead with the print of the manifesto. So the newspaper and their field have a choice to make here. They don't know whether or not if they do publish the manifesto, will he, will he actually stick to it? Or do they run the risk of, pe- of angering him if they don't print it? And also will it lead to copycats? Will it lead to people also believing in his manifesto and believing believe in what he believes in? So Ted even condones his own brutal actions within the text. If we have never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they would probably not have been accepted. In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. Throughout this, he keeps referring to it as we for the FC, trying to claim there's more people within within the uh, the group. But um, the FBI, you know, they basically have already figured out that they believe this is one man working alone yeah, and yeah. they don't believe that it is a group. Ultimately, the Washington Post agrees to go ahead with it and the manifesto is published in full on September the 19th, 1995. Miles away in Texas, Ted's brother David and his wife Linda have become curious about the case of the Unabomber. Linda has been harbouring her suspicions for some time that the man on the FBI's most wanted list is in fact her brother-in-law, 
Ted. Upon release of the manifesto, David and Linda make their way to the local library to download the text. Linda sits by David's side, watching his face with patience and waiting for the reactions that the writing evokes. So she basically had read all these kind of rambling letters from uh, Ted before and seen kind of links in terms of things he was spouting and within the manifesto. It took David some convincing from her side to actually go ahead and look into it. He couldn't believe his brother would be capable of these things. Something registers with David, certainly something strong enough to agree to contact in private investigator Susan Swanson. The married couple asked Susan to take a look at it, then cross-reference letters that David has received from Ted, alongside the manifesto printed in the Washington Post. Obviously, this time as well, a lot of people have been, like with every, any case, hotlines, people ringing and you know thinking certain people have done it, so they had to go through a lot of things until they finally do investigate this properly. After some deep analysis and further investigation into Ted's geographical whereabouts over the years, Susan feels there is enough concrete evidence to suggest that Ted could well be the Unabomber. David, reluctant at first to turn in his own brother, eventually gives the green light for Susan to go ahead and contact the FBI. And quite interestingly, the FBI, during the initial bombings, had a really interesting and accurate psychological profile on the Unabomber suspect. They basically narrowed it down to three key commonalities. So number one, they had connections to academia. Number two, they were highly intelligent. And number three, they had a degree specifically relating to the hard sciences. So all three of those, obviously, absolutely spot on in terms of Ted. However, they ne never followed that up from the early stage. Susan goes ahead and contacts the FBI. She informs the Unabomber task force of her reasons for making contact and lets them know the writings that she has examined appear to be very similar in style and language used. For those of you that have seen the 2017 hit series Manhunt, you will know just how much forensic linguistics played a part in the capture of Ted Kaczynski. And it was his specific use of language that ultimately led to him being caught. So Ted has a very articulate way of writing, yet it is also considered quite a dated style and the misspellings of particular words enabled FBI agents to notice small links between the pieces of writing they were able to obtain, along with David Kaczynski's help later on with the Unabomber Manifesto. However, there's one particular phrase that really grabbed their attention. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, Ted preferred to use it the following way. You can't eat your cake and have it too. And this phrase was the light bulb moment for the Unabomber task force. So yeah, basically he had a, he basically said the phrase incorrectly. Ted. And weird thing to put in your text as well, but they had noticed that he made that mistake numerous times. So for the first time in history, language plays a significant part in the identification of a suspect and a search warrant is granted on the basis of forensic linguistics. The FBI are going after the Unabomber. Imagine a genius getting caught because he used a phrase backwards. Didn't use it backwards. Kind of backwards, kind of. Imagine a genius, Tom. Yep. Go on. Getting caught for using a silly phrase, silly, silly, getting a silly phrase wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite the opposite. It just happened there. 3rd of April 1993. Federal agents and SWAT teams have swarmed Ted's cabin in the woods and lay hidden in wait for the plan to unfold. Three individuals advance with caution towards the cabin under the ruse of working for an oil corporation. One of them calls out, Hello? Is anyone home? An unkempt and dishevelled Ted hears the voice from inside his cabin and picks up his head in curiosity, wondering who could be out there. He stands up and proceeds to open the door of his cabin, where he is greeted by the three men who explain that they are from the Nordic Drilling Company team, all the while creeping closer and closer to the Unabomber. 
They take in their suspect's appearance, and it appears that Ted Kaczynski has not washed in months. His hair is a dirty, matted mess. His skin is encrusted with grime, and his clothes are filthy and ripped. They can hardly believe that this hermit in the woods is the bombing mastermind that they have been chasing for all these years. Ted, somewhat dazed and confused, is immediately pounced on by one of the agents posing as an oil executive and is pulled from his home and forced into handcuffs. Upon doing so, multiple more agents appear from hiding, surrounding Ted Kaczynski. He has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and after 17 years, it is officially over for the Unabomber. Fantastic. Fantastic! Once Ted is safely in the hands of the FBI, then a detailed search of his cabin gets underway. Inside his tiny home, they discover his manual typewriter, materials used in the construction of bombs, rough drafts of the manifesto, along with coded diaries and aviator sunglasses to name but a few damning items. A pre-prepared bomb is even discovered under his own bed. There is no doubt that Ted Kaczynski is the Unabomber. They have their guy, along with a mountain of physical evidence to prove so. Over a thousand miles away, David Kaczynski and his wife Linda are watching the events unfold in horror on the TV from their home in Texas. The FBI had promised Ted's brother and sister-in-law that they would not be identified and they would also be informed ahead of time should an arrest be on the cards. Neither promise was maintained and they, along with the rest of the world, discovered that Ted Kaczynski had been arrested at his cabin in the woods and identified as the deadly Unabomber, all thanks to them. So basically there was a, a, a news report at the time that literally stated something along the lines of Ted Kaczynski was fingered by his own family, which uh, is actually on the Netflix documentary Unabomber in his own words. So we're now going to move into the trial of Ted Kaczynski. In the run-up to the trial, a lot of attention is placed on the state of Ted's mental health. Unbeknownst to Ted, his family and team of lawyers have agreed between themselves behind Ted's back to do whatever is needed to be done to make sure Ted is kept alive. Ultimately, submitting a request that he had been tried on the basis of insanity, of which Ted is vehemently against. Basically, Ted doesn't want this to happen because he doesn't want his manifesto to be linked with the, the insanity plea, essentially, and have basically undermined everything that he had written. So the defence team plans to focus heavily on the traumatic psychological experiments he was subjected to in his teenage years at Harvard, and they wish to suggest that the result of these tests are the reason for his psyche later in life. Ted, however, considers himself to be of perfectly sane mind and rebuffs any claims that the Harvard experiments have had a detrimental effect on his mental health. One of his ultimate fears, as Tom kind of alluded to, is that should the word insanity be attached to his name, then all of his ideals and theories will be dismissed as the ramblings of a madman. You would have thought if he'd considered that much, he would have tidied up his, his beard and made the cabin a bit more presentable. He didn't think it was going to be caught, did he? In early January of 1998, Ted asks to dismiss his lawyers and represent himself. This request is denied by the judge, who states that he has no choice but to keep his current legal counsel. As a result, Kaczynski attempts suicide later that night in a desperate bid to maintain control over his situation. However, he fails to succeed in his plan and the motions continue in preparation for the trial. In consideration of his suicide attempt, Ted is subjected to approximately 20 hours of psychological assessment by psychologist Sally Johnson, who ultimately rules him as fit to stand trial, yet concludes that he suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. On January 21st, 1998, despite the psychiatric diagnosis, Ted is proclaimed as competent to stand trial upon these grounds. The prosecution team pushed for the death penalty. Ted manages to avoid execution by agreeing to plead guilty on January 22nd, 1998 in exchange for eight life sentences without ever having the possibility of parole. 
Ted Kaczynski is sentenced to life in prison at a United States Penitentiary maximum facility in Florence, Colorado, where he spends up to 23 out of 24 hours confined to his cell for the next 20 plus years. So on December 14th, 2021, Ted will be moved to the Federal Medical Center, Butner, North Carolina, for health reasons, as Ted is being diagnosed with terminal cancer. That's also the prison where Joe Exotic is. Oh. That's currently where he is now, and he's, he's predicted not to be um, have, have a whole lot of time left. So that is the case of the Unabomber. We're going to go into a bit of aftermath now. But yeah, there's lots to kind of dissect and go over. So in the early years of his incarceration, Ted famously befriended Oklahoma City bomber, who we talked a little bit about in last week's episode, Timothy McVeigh. He also befriended the 1993 World Trade Center bomber, Ramsey Youssef. They allegedly found common ground in subjects such as politics, nature and survivalism, and their prison wing became known as Bomber's Row. From briefcase boys to Bomber's Row. There's also a thing I found online about a blogger saying that they believe a certain uh, Greta Thunberg has been speaking to him. Wow. Which, it's this blogger saying this. So, yeah, it, it seems very unlikely. But obviously, Teb is very environmental-minded, and so is, is Greta. So maybe it's just an easy win for them to link those two together. Yes, uh, he has never demonstrated any remorse for what he's done and has always maintained that injuries and death caused were necessary in getting his message across. I think Ted would be very much part of Extinction Rebellion. But he would think that they wouldn't go far enough. Because he his basically idea is, in order to make an omelette, you've got to crack a few eggs. But he's doing it in the sense of blood has to be shed in order to make these things happen. It's not going to be an yeah. easy movement. Yeah. But yeah. They were Is it collateral damage? Yeah. Yeah, they were collateral damage. Ted has obtained quite the following from environmental activism groups such as Earth First, who find the preachings of his famous manifesto strongly aligned with their own beliefs. Some people even believe that Ted could be the Zodiac Killer. A lot to do with the kind of coded messages there. Communicating with the media and the alleged similarity between Ted and the sketch for the Zodiac. But I don't think they're even that similar, to be completely honest. I think it's more similar to the Richard Ramirez composites if you just put some shades on him. In a way. In a way. I'm looking forward to seeing you look at Lucky Zeph. That's something you're saying. Stay tuned. No. Now 80 years old, Ted Kaczynski has since been moved from the Supermax prison where he spent the last two decades. I'm confident. You fucking idiot. David Kaczynski still harbours a lot of guilt for turning his brother over to the FBI and Ted still refuses to speak to him to this day. Ted, apparently David's still writing letters, but Ted's not replying. And if you see David in documentaries now, you can still kind of see him, like his face light up when he talks about him. And yeah. he does seem very like, he speaks well of him and he kind of, you can still feel that guilt. Yeah. And then you see Linda going, I never liked him, <laughs> uh, his wife. So yeah, it, it's uh it's a very peculiar case. And as I said, this if you read the manifesto or some parts of it, there's, there's a lot of things which you can kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. But obviously there's a way to go about things. So David now devotes his time to campaigning against capital punishment and heads up the organisation New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. He and his wife Linda became very close friends with Gary Wright, survivor of bomb number 12. And there we go, Ben. That is the case, the Unibomber. Uh, it's time for the light relief for the case. Mm. The Unabomber. Mm, yeah. Some lookalikes. Absolutely. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. Do you want to start us off? I'll get us rolling, shall I? Please do. I've got three. One of them is terrible and one of them is a bit of a you shout. Okay. Different to terrible, so I'll take it. Shit. We're going to start with uh, my strongest by a distance. <laughs> Go on. Sean Bean. Okay. 
It's not the worst you've ever done. Take that to the bank. Okay. So I've mine. This one is <laughs> a bit of a jokey one. Is this uh, the me one? No. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So him there looks a little bit like Michael Team Wolf. It's just oh, there. I thought it was the son out of Jumanji. No. Okay. Team Wolf. Uh, it's just the hair and the beard. It looks very wolfy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see you. Okay. My next one um, is a skinny version of Phil Margera. Which is usually the old. I can see that one. <laughs> you can see that one? Yeah. Maybe Sean Bean with that photo. Maybe. Sean Bean with that photo. This photo instead of the scruffy photo I used. Sean Bean next to that one might work a bit, a bit better. A bit better. I've just thought of one now, which I'm just going to check whilst, you know, live, live well, on the podcast. To, do you want me to do another one? Then? I guess I do. An artist I bloody love called Wayne White does word paintings and I love them. Not, not your worst, but... Okay. So I originally went for a young, a young, young Ted. Looks yeah. a bit like Jonathan Woodgate. It's not bad. But then I also think he looks like the actor Holt McKelney from uh, Mindhunter a bit. Not it's bad. Similar face. Yeah, not bad. Well, we'll keep we'll keep the theme of young Ted, mm-hmm. uh, and I have used this actor before. I think I used him for the Donald Nielsen case, but I'm going for young Ted. Looks like a young Michael Shannon from Boardwalk Empire. Uh, chin is massively different, but and this is this is the more you one. Okay, I don't think it's out of this world to say that Stephen Anthony Lawrence, also known as Beans from Even Stevens, when he grows up. Couldn't be um, the brother of Ted, David. Similar eyes. They have got similar eyes. <laughs> beans, but if you search him now, he looks very different now, Beans. He doesn't do anything like that. But that, <laughs> that's, a little, that's a bit of a rogue one for the lookalikes, as they always tend to be. But let's know if we've, if we've missed any. I'm sure we have. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some good ones this week. Yeah, there's one that I think I'm missing, but I just can't He's remember. got that face, hasn't he? He has. Yeah. He bloody well has, Ben. And that, that is the case of the Unabomber. I hope we have... Uh, we have done it justice. There's, there's so much to unpack. That it's a thirty-five thousand manifesto, Ben. It is a thirty-five thousand manifesto. Yeah, so there's lots of lots of on there, and lots of uh, different documentaries and different uh, dramatized series, which is definitely worth watching. So, uh, highly recommend. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have another big, big case coming next week. We're back to black. When isn't it a big, big case? But yeah, uh, thank you ever so much to everybody that's either listened or watched this episode or viewed um, or viewed or heard or heard this episode because we are an audio and visual podcast if you just can't wait until next week which is a big episode and we're back in the uk just wait then why not consider supporting us like many other amazing people do over on patreon we've got at the time of recording 80 odd exclusive episodes on there we do requests some cool cases over there and you can find us and then they're also audio and video over there and you can find us at patreon.com forward slash could murder a pod we also have social media. Go on, Ben, you got this. Go on. Okay, well, we've got Twitter, Ooh. at Commurderapod. We've got Instagram, at Commurderapod. Yeah. TikTok, at I Could Murder a Pod. Facebook, just search I Could Murder a Podcast. By the time you get I Could Murder in, we'll be there, and you will just hear the community mm. popping off. Bubbling away. Bubbling, Bubbling away. away. And if you have a spare minute, why not give us a, a rating on, on, on wherever you listen to us on? It very much helps us out and gets, gets, spreads the word. And We always appreciate people spreading the word. Yeah, tell your friends, tell your family. Tell your colleagues, tell your neighbours about us. All about us. Yes, Ben. Yes, Ben. We've also got a store. Okay, yeah. We've, you know, we've got some stock still left. Mugs, hats, stickers, badges. Yeah, they're on there. Got the candles, store, the store, posters, show it, show it, all small, there. medium and large jumpers and shirts. 
shirts, t-shirts, jumpers and tees. We have sold a lot of cucumbers recently because it's getting colder. It's yeah. getting a bit darker now. Great it's fragrance for Halloween. Great fragrance for Halloween. It smells exactly like a horrible movie. It smells exactly like Halloween should smell, but it's not pumpkin. Yeah, yeah, really good smell. And and look, blood red. Yeah, yeah, lovely stuff. Bloody like, lovely. Like a scab. I reckon by you the series. You've picking it again. No. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. That's, That's That screams picked. All right. Well, audio people, come and have a look on the visual because. Oh, it, God, guys, if you want to see something, come come for literally looking at a dirty scab. It's not dirty. That's a clean heel. Four episodes left of the series, boys. And girls. What a weak finish to an episode. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, we need to get something. All right, guys. Yeah, apologies that we've been a bit poorly this week. Hopefully, yeah. it hasn't impacted our energy or our voices too mm. much. But we'll be back next week, and we'll be full of beans, like bloody beans from even Stevens. You could say, you could say that. <laughs> you could, and I have. Wow. Anyway, guys, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you are doing. Well, unless you're not comfortable, but oh, go unless on. you're not comfortable about skipping a year, do it at your own pace. Learn life, learn from your mistakes, learn along the way. It's a journey, and we're all on the same one. Just approaching it at different strides. Some are a few strides ahead. Some are, some are fucking far behind, I guess. Yeah, some anyway, are. guys, all best yeah. <laughs> to you, Ben. See you later. Oh, Ben. Change. <laughs> Never. Don't have to. We're all at different strides. We're all at different strides. <laughs> <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson. DeGrasse. Oh no, what have I done? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, thank God for that. DeGrasse. <laughs> I read it as Italian. You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Edited by Ben Bonsi. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten, and theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash couldmurderapod. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.